Welcome to Travel Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Ace Cultural Tours. It's Violet here. In this episode, the acclaimed writer Simon Winchester is going to take us back to 1924, to three events with particular resonance today. They are all connected with his latest book, Knowing What We Know, The Transmission of Knowledge from Ancient Wisdom to Modern Magic, which takes us from Babylon to ChatGPT, addressing education, technology and propaganda along the way. Simon is famous for taking on huge subjects. He has written histories of land ownership, the Atlantic Ocean, and precision engineering, amongst many others. But his first bestseller was The Surgeon of Crowthorne, which told the extraordinary tale of one man's contribution to the Oxford English Dictionary. Simon's expansive vision and eye for a story is rooted in years of living across the globe as a journalist. It was a thrill to be able to speak to him the other day. Hello, Simon, and welcome to Travels Through Time. Well, thank you very much indeed, and thank you for inviting me. Yes, well, it's a real honour and a thrill to be speaking to you today because I have been a fan of yours for many, many years. And when I saw that you had written a book with the subtitle, The Transmission of Knowledge, I had a little thrill of excitement because that's one of my most passionate subjects that I'm interested in. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. But I would like to start by asking you a much more general question about your approach to writing history, because you've written a huge number of acclaimed books and several of them, this one, this latest one in particular, uh, deal with enormous topics, subjects which are really, really uh, vast in terms of chronology and also um, the subject matter. And yet you have also written books which are very, very, very specific and hone in on a per- particular person's life. Like, for example, your, I believe your first book, your, your best selling, The Surgeon of Crowthorn, which was called The Professor and the Madman in uh, America. And so I wanted to ask you initially about that approach, what the different approaches of writing a history book, which focuses in on a very specific small moment and then the history books which write which you deal with the whole thing it, it sort of grew organically in a way wc minor he was the character in um, the book that over here in america was called the professor and the madman that spawned another book based on a single character but through his life expanding into a much larger field and that was the story of a man called william smith who was an english geologist who created the first geological map in the world. And that led to another book where it was a non-human central character, a volcano, Krakatoa, which then enabled me to expand beyond that to talk about tectonics and the structure of the world. So that approach, person leading to larger story, occupied those first three books, I think. Then there was an event, the San Francisco earthquake, which did much the same thing. But With that, I think things then started to change, and I took larger subjects to see, I suppose, 
if I could, if it was possible. And, and the bigger subjects in those cases were the Pacific Ocean and the Atlantic Ocean. I think the other way around, Atlantic first, Pacific next. And then books like this on, well, there was one on land, one on precision engineering, and then this this new one on knowledge. And they presented a very different raft of challenges, which I found interesting. But I think the way I tried to do it was to take this big subject and then try and work out four or five or six relatively specific areas of interest within knowledge transmission, which is very much your subject, because I know you've written an extremely good book about it, concentrating on three people, writers, Euclid, Galen and Ptolemy. And then within those broad areas, the five or six that I mentioned, drill down to specific stories like Minor, Smith and Krakatoa. So it's in a way, although the umbrella is much larger, the individual stories contained within it are themselves relatively small. So I don't get swept into the idea of making very broad, sweeping statements. I try and keep it as specific as possible. I know that's a rather long-winded way of answering your question, but it's um, it's what I sit down to do at the very beginning of trying to say, how do I reduce this huge subject into manageable portions? And um, whether I'm not, I've succeeded with this new knowledge book, well, we'll see what the critics have to say in a couple of weeks' time. But at the moment, um, I look back at it and I think, you know, it, it seems to work with each chapter being similar structurally to those early single character books. I hope that seems comprehensible. Yes, absolutely. And, and that's what one of the things that makes that made it such a readable and fascinating book was that you do you focus in, hone in on these little tiny stories and small details which humanise it. And I think that's a very important part about writing about, especially subjects like the history of science, or um, you've also written about geology, and I know you studied geology. And I wanted to ask you about that, what your kind of philosophy is on communicating quite complicated, perhaps slightly dry facts, and how you do that in in a way that makes it interesting and um, easily accessible to more people. Well, I don't know that I've got a philosophy about it. I know that this um, genre of what they used to call, I think the, probably the name for it has probably changed, but creative nonfiction, where you take a dry subject and nothing could be drier than 19th century lexicography, which was what the first book was about, and try and render it into, once again, to use a rather modish phrase, make it accessible, you're blessed, or at least I was blessed in that case, in that I had a murder and then self-mutilation and then all sorts of weird things happened to my central figure. So that made it, I suppose, a little a little easier. But I think you're always, your antenna are always waving to find things about the character or the topic that suddenly sound a bell in your head and you say, this is going to be fascinating. I mean, let me give you an example from this um this new book of mine, and this has nothing to do with the year we've chosen, although oddly enough, it might have been at around the same time. I write about um, an extraordinary man called Frank Ramsey, who was a polymathic Cambridge philosopher and economist who died very young in the in the 1930s, I think. He wanted keenly to have an affair with the wife of a man called Geoffrey Pike, 
E-Y-K-E, who was a Cambridge academic at the same time. And, you know, that's fine in, in and of itself and was moderately interesting until I discovered this remarkable thing about Mr. Pike or Professor Pike in that he developed this extraordinary substance called pycrete, which was a, a very, very hard material made of ice mixed with wood shavings. Mountbatten, who at the time was a rising star in the Royal Navy, decided it would be a very nifty idea to build an aircraft carrier out of pycrete, an aircraft carrier built of ice mixed with wood shavings. Now, this sounds mad to you and me. I mean, the thing would melt very slowly. It would be towed out into the middle of the ocean and would be used as a landing ship for aircraft which would attack submarines or whatever. I mean, that little fact, that little nugget, which you see buried in some book about the life of Jeffrey Pike, sounds the bell in my head, which makes me say, this chapter is going to be more interesting than it might otherwise have been. So I think always I'm on the lookout for weird stuff in history, which brings history to life. I'm sure you do too. That's a completely mad idea, isn't it? I suppose. <laughs> totally. Very it might... Yes, exactly. Um, and do you think you, you were a journalist for many, many years. And I I would imagine that that whole way of approaching a topic, that's quite that's quite journalistic, isn't it? I mean, it's, it, you must have learned some of those things. You're absolutely are... right. I'm in no sense ashamed of drawing on my years of being a, a journalist, a reporter, and putting them into a, a history book to, to liven it up in providing it's, of course, it's true. And and so forth, and I'm not, uh, you know, using news of the world techniques. No, no, not at all. I was a Guardian man, totally respectable. <laughs> so, um, yeah, always on the lookout for things like that. Finding a good story. Yeah. That's what it's all about. I, I wondered, who who are the historians that you admire, living or dead? I mean, which, which books are you, would you sort of, I'm not going to ask you to name a top 10, because that's a terribly difficult and boring, but who, who do you sort of think, I, you know, that they really do it well? Well, I think one among the big guys, I think I have to say H.G. Wells. I think his, um, I've got a copy of it, what's it called? A Study of a study of History. Two volumes should be on every bookshelf, I think. Toynbee, of course, Macaulay, of course, but H.G. Wells, so good in so many fields. I um, admire him totally. I haven't read um, uh, Claire Tomlin's biography of the young H.G. Wells. I'd like to, um, but I find him utterly admirable. Yeah. And can you just tell us a little bit about your earlier background as a journalist and um, all of the places that you lived? Because it's really striking, uh, this particular book, that your scope geographically is is extraordinary. And I'm sure that must be a reflection of all the places in the world that you've lived and travelled to. And you obviously have connections. I was particularly struck by the story about the school in Bangalore, is it? With Yes, um, Bangalore now, but Bangalore. Yes, Bangalore. So can you ju- just talk a little bit about that? Well, I started professional life, if you like, as a geologist and was living in East Africa in Uganda on the Uganda-Congo border. And then I came back and started work as a newspaper reporter, first of all in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. And then I joined The Guardian, covered northeast England, and um, was more or less immediately sent after a very few months there to Northern Ireland, so to cover the Troubles, basically in their formative years from, what was it, about 69 to 72, just after Bloody Sunday and Operation Motorman. And then I was sent to Washington, and that 
covered uh, was there covering Watergate, but also was sent a lot to to central and somewhat more limited extent to Latin America and Canada. So there were only two of us in those days. I think the Guardian office in Washington, New York now has about 70 people, but there were just two of us responsible for the entire pair of continents, North and South America. And then from there, I went to um, India once again, because of the budgetary constraints, instead of having dozens of people, um, I covered an area, I suppose, from, oh, I suppose, Tashkent in the north down to certainly the Maldive Islands in the central Indian Ocean, and then over to Tehran in the west, and um, I suppose Rangoon in the east. And from there, I went to live in Hong Kong for the next 13 years, I think it was, once again, covering everything from, you know, Sakhalin Island in the north, um, east of Russia, down to Australia and all of the Pacific. So um, there was a lot of paid for wandering about, which was nice. And um, I tended to go places by the longest and most difficult route. So driving from England to India to take up the Guardian job and then going by train from Liverpool Street to Hong Kong for the Guardian job. So quite a lot of miles were covered. Like Michael Palin a bit in the in the footsteps. <laughs> yes, he was rather famous and got a knighthood for it. So. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing to distinguish for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's still time. There's still time. Not, not much running up, but anyway, <laughs> nice to think. And I I heard you um, being interviewed about your last book, Land, which took on the tiny topic of land ownership through the ages. And you said that one of the impulses behind wanting to write that book was that you purchased a piece of land for yourself in America. And I wondered whether any particular things set you on the path to write Knowing What We Know. Whether there was a similar thing. Golly. Where did the idea come from? Have have you been thinking about writing a book like this for a long time? An awful lot of these book ideas come from breakfast time discussions with my wife, quite honestly. Our breakfast table is an interesting place to be. And... um, but yes, it all comes about with them talking about, um, I think one or the other of us was fulminating about newspapers and how inaccurate they are and how one used to rely on this particular paper and now it's somewhat discredited by this event or that and the coverage of this part of the world or that is not as good as it should be or used to be. And out of that came a more general discussion about how knowledge gets transmitted and both my wife and I went through a period of being very interested in the whole technology of letterpress printing. And so the idea of printing and Gutenberg and all of that stuff became interesting. And it just sort of semi-organically stems out of con- out of conversations like this. So breakfast, that's how, how it all began. It sounds like a good place to be, your breakfast <laughs> table. Um, so can you tell us a bit about the book, how you structured it and how you went about writing? Yes, I mean, corralling all this transmission of knowledge into bite-sized chunks, if you like. Well, I I started it out by simply looking at what is knowledge and um, how it's defined without trying to get into the whole epistemological debate, which, of course, occupies academic minds, conferences, and will for generations to come. So I wanted to stick to your favourites, if you like. I mean, the holy trinity of Socrates, Plato and Aristotle, who were the ones principally dealing, and Plato most notably of all, in the dialogues about what is knowledge and this idea of justified 
true belief, which still to this day really is the, the linchpin of all discussions about what knowledge is. So having, if you like, disposed of that, I mean, putting the definitions to bed, then how is it transmitted? And it seems to me that once, well, initially before written language, then it's the oral traditions. And so I look to an extent about, um, for instance, as a classic example in an area of the world that I know a little, how the people, the Jarawa, specifically in the Andaman Islands in um, off the coast of um, Myanmar, um, how they came to survive the 2004 tsunami um, because they uniquely, among all the people that lived on the Andaman Islands, most of those being Hindu migrants from India, but these are not, these are indigenous people, and they had uh, an oral tradition of songs and poems which kicked in on this particular day, the 26th of December 2004, when the sea in which they were attempting to fish suddenly disappeared from the beach, leaving an enormous expanse of sand in front of them. And in one or two of them, so locals now say, they remembered the song, if the sea goes out, run for the hills. And so they all, as one, ran furiously up through the jungle to the highest possible point, and watched with dismay and then horror as gigantic waves swept in, destroying all the buildings on and around the beach and killing hundreds and hundreds of fellow islanders who didn't have the oral tradition that they did. And they were killed and drowned. They survived, and they survived because of the transmission of knowledge orally over generations. So I look briefly at that, and then really the book sort of kicks into gear once you've got written um, transmission of knowledge, and then you can start writing about schools or about cuneiform writing in Mesopotamia, and then looking at schools and the transmission of knowledge from our elders, if you like, to youngsters in the traditional educational model. So I look at the development of an education, and then I look at the transmission of knowledge by, if you like, newspapers, by, by print, you know, the development of print, the, development, the invention of paper, and how you look at newspapers and distortion of knowledge and uh, manipulation of knowledge. I look at propaganda, I look at public relations, I look at broadcasting. So all of these fields of, if you like, teaching is down a generation. Newspapers and broadcasting are parallel, horizontal transmission of knowledge. And then I start looking at um, technology. And that's, I try to bring the book up to date by looking at the devices that have taken over from our brains have transmitted knowledge in a in a more electronic way. So we look at, for instance, calculation, GPS, predictive texting, spell checking, grammar checking, things like Google, Wikipedia. I look at encyclopedias. I mean, you can say it's 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 not a mishmash. There's an awful lot to deal with. And then I ask towards the end of the book, what is this this particular means of of transmitting knowledge and defining, of course, what the difference is between data, information, and knowledge. Knowledge, therefore, being information that has been, if you like, hooked in your brain, put into context. Whether all these devices that uh, remove your need to know things reduces thoughtfulness. And if you stop thinking, stop being thoughtful, what effect does that have on this other sort of very inchoate thing called wisdom. What is wisdom? 
do we need wisdom? Can we acquire wisdom? But if we don't have the knowledge that we once used to, because these electronic devices take away our need to know things, then what is our future? A world without wisdom. I sort of answer that at the very end in an optimistic sense. And I also try and just um, to, to bring this totally up to date to, to deal with what was coming in, into public view while I was getting to the end of writing the book, which is this whole business of artificial intelligence and chat GPT and open AI and all of this. How does this play into um, into the whole scene? And clearly when the paperback comes out, which is in about a year from now, I'll have to do a completely new preface because the landscape is changing so rapidly. So with that single caveat, that basically is the organisational structure of the book. And you end on this, I, I thought, really uplifting possibility that these machines are going to free our minds so that we can all become, as you said, our own Confucius or Aristotle, which I thought was a very, a very optimistic way of ending. I mean, do you really feel like that? Because Well, I do. <laughs> yes. And sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I do because I've been thinking about it rather more. And maybe you and I will now argue about this because your knowledge of the classical world is much greater than mine. But I would look at it this way, that um, I'm being an optimist, in that I think the minds of our cleverest today are no less vigorous and filled with possibilities than were Herodotus and Pythagoras and Euclid and Socrates, Plato and Aristotle. They all, we all had great minds. We all have great minds. Their minds were necessarily less filled with information, with knowledge, because there wasn't so much to know. I mean, they didn't know very many other languages, with the exclusion of Aristotle, who did travel around a bit. They didn't know much about the world. They had very little history to know, because there wasn't very much history. Their minds were relatively uncluttered. But look at our minds today. I mean, even of our bright, brightest people, they will feel obligated to know the capital of South Dakota or the atomic weight of sodium or magnesium or the date of the Battle of Hastings or whatever, if all of those things, which objectively, although interesting, are not necessary for us to think, then it's akin to using all this technology to, as it were, take our brains, hold them under a tap and clean it of all its extraneous information, put it back in our heads, reduce us or change us into tabulae rasae, that is the plural of those two words, from which we might be able to start thinking the things that are really necessary. Now, that may be a naive, sort of idealistic wish, but I don't want to think that modern electronics has ruined us forever. I mean, labour-saving devices have clearly ruined our bodies. I mean, we're fat and slovenly and all the rest of it, and rather like those characters in... Uh, that seminal, I think, very important movie called Wall E, where humankind was living in sort of suborbital spaceships and just consuming liquid slurry and watching soft porn and commercials on flat screen TVs and doing nothing. That is the possibility for our bodies. Not all of us, of course, but many of us, the majority of us, I'd say, are getting unfit. I don't believe that necessarily our brains are going to get say, they're going to go the same way. I hope not. And so that is my perhaps naive, idealistic view of how, well, it can reduce to take away the unnecessary stuff and allow us to think again afresh.
Well, I'm going to hold on to that because that that that's a very positive way of looking at it. And I feel more pessimistic because I think that not ever having to know the map of where you live, for example, you know, not ever having that spatial picture in your head or not ever learning anyone's telephone number off by heart. I, I do believe that that will affect, you know, our brains are very plastic, aren't they? They kind of build themselves and change constantly. And if we're not using them, I don't know. I just worry that everyone's sitting on their phones playing Candy yeah, I, Crush. I think, I think I, from just this <laughs> last weekend, I was in Washington, D.C. and having lunch with someone who was complaining that GPS brought her to the restaurant we were having lunch in. But when she got out of the car to walk to the restaurant, she realised that possibly for the first time in her life, she had lost her, quote, sense of direction. Now, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, you'd get out of your car and notice that the sun was straight in front of you. And you'd say, oh, that's south. And so you had a sense of direction that was innate. She was concerned that her sense of direction had now been stripped from her brain because of the insidious effects of GPS. So you may be right. I regret it. Well, let's let's agree on a compromise between the two. We we need some optimism. It's very, very important. Well, I think now we should harness our senses of direction and get in our time machine and go back to your chosen year, which is? 1924. Wonderful. So can you give us a brief sort of idea of what is happening in 1924? 24 was um, relative prosperity around the world, of course. Germany recovering from the depredations of the First World War, so the whole Weimar Republic is is up and running. And if you um, watch a movie series like um, Berlin Babylon, we're starting to get uneasiness in, in Europe. In Britain, things are getting into their sort of full decadent Charleston black bottom swing. So the economy is certainly bounced back, not you know, to a very large degree, of course, because of the prosperity that's often caused by war in the, the winner's condition anyway. So basically, the, the, the world was in a relatively cheerful state. And in Britain, specifically, what had happened was unprecedented, in that rather similar, of course, what happened after the Second World War, when Attlee won over Churchill, here you have a Scottish socialist politician, Ramsay MacDonald, winning a general election. So power to the people has arrived in the United Kingdom. And there was a great uh, sense of, um, one might say, joie de vivre anyway, in that in that regard. But that sets the scene, I think, for the first, if I may yeah. launch into my peroration. Please do. The first of these three events that I, I've chosen. And that is the extraordinary story of what's come to be known as the Zinoviev letter, not to be confused with the other Z event, which is the Zimmerman telegram, which is completely different. So if anyone <laughs> thinks that this is going to be a talk about the Zimmerman telegram, that happened in Mexico City, it was to do with submarines in the Second World War. The Zinoviev letter. So Ramsay MacDonald is Prime Minister, um, an affable pipe smoking, I think, maybe Calvinist, maybe not pipe smoking. Anyway, he's in Downing Street. And the shires, the people of the shires, are horrified by the fact that a working-class Scotsman has got into power. And they do their level best 
to unseat him. And indeed, his majority in the House of Commons is so slender and the the alliances that have propelled him to power in what is essentially a, a rather fragile coalition are persuaded after only a very few min- months with him in office um, that he should be dislodged in a confidence vote. There was indeed a confidence vote, which he lost. We're now in October 1924, and he has to go to the country. Another general election is called. And as you know, and of course we over here in America envy you, um, the election campaign is three weeks, essentially. I mean, ours has already begun. Over Rather here. than three years. Please don't even tell me. <laughs> so anyway, the election campaign is chugging along and um, he's doing quite well. I think Ramsay MacDonald looks not assured of a victory, but likely to win over Stanley Baldwin, who is his affable, and he is a pipe-smoking Tory politician, until just a few days before the election, when suddenly plastered over the front page of the Daily Mail, which was as scurrilous a newspaper in 24 as it is today, is a story which says that if Ramsay MacDonald wins, then the Bolsheviks are going to swing all their support behind him and turn Britain into a Bolshevik state. And this story emanated from a letter which came from a man called Zinoviev in Moscow, who was the General Secretary of Comintern, which is the communist international organization, which its mission was rather like the Vatican, if you like, spreading not Catholicism, but communism around the world. So Comintern had agents all over the all over the planet trying to spread the benefits of socialism or com- communism to people from pole to pole, as it were. This letter sent to the Labour Party headquarters in London, said, comrades, if you win, we will foment revolution with your assistance. We'll overturn the royal family. We'll subvert the army, navy, and rather primitive in those days, air force. And it'll be just like the Soviet Union. This story was plastered all over the front pages of the Daily Mail. The consequence was that Britain was up in arms about this and said, this is not what we want. This would be absolutely appalling. And Ramsay MacDonald was defeated in a landslide. And Stanley Baldwin became the next prime minister. And that brief flickering of socialist optimism was snuffed out. And it wouldn't be until a very great deal later that the Labour Party got back into power. Well, it turns out, of course, the Zinoviev letter was a forgery. It was forged. It's a controversy that will never die because no one quite knows what happened, but we think it was um, authored by a foreign office official called J.D. Gregory, who um, was doubling up the MI5 at the same time, got this letter and leaked it to the day, or made this letter and saw that it wrote this letter and saw that it was leaked to the Daily Mail with all the consequences. There is a family connection in this, oddly enough, in that uh, J.D. Gregory was great pals with um, my grandfather, who was a Belgian stockbroker living in London called A.F. de Waal. And all sorts of nefarious goings on, which I won't uh, trouble you with now, but uh, involving uh, the daughter of a Liverpool tram driver, a very attractive young woman who was sleeping with him and with my grandfather. Anyway, it's a very complicated subject, but nefarious goings on. When was it exposed as a forgery? Uh, 1928. So a while afterwards. Not immediately. Uh, No, and a lot of other things were exposed in the trial. 
1928 called the Franks case. And Gregory and five of his colleagues were dismissed from the Foreign Office. The daughter of the Liverpool tram driver um, was went off to America and she became a, not a film star because she became rather stout and played landladies and mothers-in-law in various films, including Calcutta, starring Rock Hudson in 1956. So the ramifications of this story are immense, but the central part of the story was the forgery. Obviously, we know what the motives were, which was to ruin, uh, to topple Ramsay MacDonald's chances of becoming Premier. But precisely who did it, we still are not 100% and, sure. And who, ordered, who ordered it to be done? Well, that's another thing, MI5, basically. And will you talk a little bit about Lord Rothermere and his proprietor of the Daily Mail newspaper? And well, there's yeah. just a lot of echoes with uh, today's world, aren't there? Well, of course. I mean, and, and this goes back to why I was particularly interested in in, in writing this book, because it is all about people like uh, Rupert Murdoch today, of course, and uh, Lord Beaverbrook, writer of the Daily Express, Lord Rothermere, writer of the Daily Mail. And their, generally speaking, uh, politically conservative aims, and uh, they would certainly well, want their newspapers to be read by the, the ruffians, by Hoi Polloi, but they wouldn't wish them to be in power. And so the manipulation of the information was part and parcel of what they did and always had done. And of course, the same is essentially true over here in America. I mean, the owners of the big newspapers here manipulate their, the news and opinions that they uh, they say they don't, they say they shouldn't, um, but they do. So newspapers are, generally speaking, I mean, one would like to accept The Guardian from this in as far as it's run by a trust, but even that's not entirely true. Newspapers are for-profit organisations. Their proprietors would like us subtly to be reminded of that. And Rothermere was a classic example. Lord Northcliffe, Lord Rothermere, Northcliffe at the Times, Rothermere at the Mail, Beaverbrook at the Express, Murdoch at now the Times, of course. It's interesting, I always wondered whether, and this isn't totally uh, off the mark, whether, I mean, I remember Lord Thompson when he owned the Times, and then his son, Ken Thompson. Murdoch took it over shortly after he, Rupert Murdoch, financed a very well-received film called Gallipoli, in which decision to send Australian boys over the top was made by a completely unthinking, cruel, aristocratic British officer during the Gallipoli in 1915. And I think quite reasonably Murdoch, who remember was an Australian, yeah. was so appalled by this, by what Peter Weir's film highlighted in its closing and very moving moments that he said, I want to get even with these upper class twits who in those days read the Times. The slogan for the Times in those very years were top people take the Times. I remember seeing the notices in the tube station in London. It made it clear that the Times was the upper class bulletin board, if you like, the notice board for the British aristocracy. And Murdoch in my view, anyway, was so offended by what he saw in the film that he financed Gallipoli that he said, I'm going to buy their notice board. And so he did. He wrested it away from the Thompson family and has owned it ever since. Whether that has uh, 
worked on, in any sense, er eroding the British class system. I don't know. I live over here now. But the British newspaper proprietors were a fascinating breed of people. As is shown by this episode in 1924, they wield sometimes enormous power to change governments, as they did so successfully that October. What what do you think we can do in order to try and, in the future, to try and retain the the press, to, to try and retain some kind of, to try and stop that happening? Like, what can we do in the future to avoid the murder? Is it impossible? Is it impossible? Well, I, I like to think not, but, um, you know, who runs the internet? Who um, Who are the forces behind it all that... I mean, for instance, I mean, look at the mail today. I read newspapers voraciously online, obviously. I mean, I live in a remote part of the countryside. I can only get delivered one local paper. So everything I read online, and I read the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Guardian, the London Times, and the Daily Mail. And the da- you can see why the Daily Mail is so popular, the most popular English language newspaper in the world. But and why? This, because I well, saw it, the, uh, I looked at it the other day and I got to page four and I just started to actually feel physically sick, unwell, just the stories, the, the negativity, the toxicity of it. I uh, had to stop reading it. And I, like you, I always think it's really important not to just be in your own echo chamber. You can't just, you know, read the newspaper, which is echoing back your own point of view to you. But equally, I can't make myself. I agree. I feel like I need to have a shower after mm. I read the Daily Mail. And sort of rolling in the mud is briefly fun, but I need to know. I mean, I remember that when um, I worked for The Guardian, they would read The Telegraph back then because they wanted to know what the other side thought and what the arguments were. So that's essentially, I mean, you might say it's just you know, the trifecta of fat, sugar and salt that makes Oreo cookies so delicious, although I don't eat them as it happens. It's it's tempting tempts people like me if you like and I do therefore keep an eye on what's going on and then revert to the newspapers that I like and enjoy them and feel properly informed but uh, I think it's sort of essential to keep touch and the mail allows me to do that but like you I'm not sure about it page four but 10 minutes of it that'll do Do it for me. Do you think that the court cases of recent years the hacking scandal all of that has that made a difference to the way that the press... Well, um, you tell me. I mean, that was all The Sun, wasn't it? And Rebecca, whatever her mm. name was. I don't ever look at The Sun, but a lot of people do. I mean, has it damaged the circulation of, of, of the what they call the red tops in Britain? I, I actually, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't have... I think the answer is probably no. And the Guardian is not doing. No, I don't mean really it. Well. I don't. I don't mean in terms of their circulation figures. I mean more in terms of their methods of getting obtaining information. Oh, oh I see. Are they still? Has it affected them? the sort of morality of those publications in terms of what they're prepared to do to get? A story? I would think it would have to because it is so rigorously protected now by by the law. So I think yes, doesn't really obtain over here. Quite honestly, I'm not going to say that the press over here is. It's it's somewhat more restrained, and it's. Uh, I mean, the, the British press is is unique in the world in that regard. Mm. It still astonishes me that you know New York City we effectively only have three newspapers or four, I suppose. Yet in London, eleven is it or thirteen? It's quite extraordinary. The British are still wedded to their papers because mm. it's you like part of the national conversation. You see yourselves as extensions of conversation, whereas over here we see our newspapers as extensions of history rather more sort of solemn about journalism here than in Britain. 
Yeah, that is interesting, isn't it? I think it's probably partly because of the proliferation of local newspapers in this country as well. Well, we've got a fair number here. And indeed, we, my wife and I have started one in our little village and it's been going now for 14 years. You produce it. We do. Well, now we're sort of editor emeritus or something, but... uh, you don't print it on your letterpress, do you? No, no, print it on the letterpress. <laughs> it's printed by Quick Print in Great Barrington. <laughs> but it and comes what, out every month. What's it called? What's... It's called the Sandisfield Times. And Excellent. it is lovely. Um, I mean, I think you'd be quite impressed. Sandisfieldtimes.com. Well, how can I, how can I get, can I get it online? Can I? Yeah, you certainly it? can. Yeah, we produce well, I it. Well, I will definitely do that. Do. And, I hope, and I hope our listeners will as well. Hello, it's Peter here. I hope you're enjoying this conversation between Violet and Simon, all about the joy of knowledge. This is a message that's really at the core of the work our partners, Ace Cultural Tours, do. Each year, they run more than 100 tours, and while these head off to hugely varying destinations, they're all underpinned by the quest for knowledge and the thrill of lifelong learning. This learning is always transmitted by deeply informed subject experts who can really bring a place to life. Some upcoming highlights include art collections and stately homes of the West Country, or in March 2024, they're running an Art Treasures of Manchester tour, featuring visits to notable libraries such as John Ryland's Library and Chetham's Library, which was founded in 1653 and is one of the oldest public libraries in the English-speaking world. To find out more about these, as well as about trips to discover the cultural delights of Europe and beyond, head to their website at www.aceculturaltours.co.uk. Holidays for the culturally curious. We must we must move on to yep. scene two is over in your part of the world. We're in New York, I think, aren't we? Well, we're actually no, I'm at in Sandersfield, which is yes, in Massachusetts. But in America. In America, yes. Well, the second thing that interested me from the point of view of writing this book is uh, the creation of IBM, International Business Machines, which was founded in I think February the fourteenth, Valentine's Day, nineteen twenty-four, and is still going strong. I mean, a few hiccups along the way, but basically it was a, a tabulating, a calculating uh, company called Hollerith, and then it had a variety of names. And then this man called James Watson, the name is applied now to supercomputers that play chess and generally speaking win, are called Watson these days in his honour, but he named the company IBM. And um, International Business Machines, I think, still the biggest computer company in the world, 400,000 or so employees. We, at least I remember them most of all for their punch cards. I, One of my first jobs was in Oklahoma in the late 60s when I had to use a massive computer which read these pink punch cards with holes in them and um, and drew maps from the data that was encoded on them. Well, that's all, of course, have changed into solid state and chips and uh, that sort of thing. And IBM brought us, as a result of those developments, the first uh, personal computer, IBM PC, back in the 80s, I think. And then Apple came along and challenged them. And then there was the tug of war between Apple and Microsoft, who provided the operating systems for the IBM machines. But basically, 
IBM's business was the dissemination of information and, and knowledge, the, the practical way of, of d- doing this and the computing of it. There can be no gainsaying the fact that uh, of all the companies in the early days of this, IBM was at the forefront. And there was some talk I know when I read the, the rules for this uh, Travels Through Time podcast that I was to take a, a souvenir and to me, an IBM invention that I certainly used a great deal back in the 70s was a thing. I tried to get it out just now, but I couldn't actually get it out of the old typewriter that, that I had. It's a thing about the size of a golf ball with all the letters of the alphabet on it. And it, instead of when you press a key on a typewriter, an arm rises up in front of you and impresses that letter onto, first of all, through an inked ribbon, presses an image of that onto a piece of paper that you're typing on uh, sounds so primitive today it replaced all of that with a golf ball which had all the letters on it and it spun around it with incredible speed and allowed you to type very fast and uh, to get your letters onto the page much more rapidly and easily than with a conventional typewriter so an IBM golf ball and they did them in every single font you'd imagine and every single Cyrillic ones and um, I think even Arabic ones, not Chinese or Japanese, because that presents a much greater problem. They transformed, if you like, the way that ordinary human beings got their words onto pieces of paper and therefore disseminated the information they were trying to get to people back in the days when either one wrote things which would then be photocopied or sent them in a letter or whatever. So IBM hugely important in that regard. And so 1924, preeminent year in the dissemination of information for me. And so that golf ball would be your memento. Did you, was it inside a typewriter? I'm struggling to. Yes, it's so it. funny talking to, with great respect, a young person who. I, oh, no, I I'm not that young. Who, I mean, I remember typewriters. <laughs> I, I know what a typewriter kind of, I, well, I used, I used a typewriter as a child. Do you a still child have... came, well, A child came into one of the rooms in the house here where there is a, a typewriter and he Utterly perplexed. What on earth is that? <laughs> is it a piano? Um, is, what, yes, does it do music? <laughs> um, what do you write on? Do you have lots of old typewriters? Just for sort of No, I don't. I have one, two, three, four big screen Macintosh computers. and Four? And, four. Well, I do, because the one on That's my right... That's amazing. Well, it's not. It's just I don't get rid of the old ones. That's all. Oh, I see, and I this see. Is, okay. This is a new one. But on the right <laughs> is another one which... If I'm looking at doing some research and I bring up that document, I can look at it there. That's such a good idea. I've never thought of that. I always give my... You just don't get rid of the old ones. No, but I give them to my kids and then they, you know, drop them and smash them. And um, <laughs> But I'm going to keep, from now on, I'm keeping them. I'm imagining you as a kind of Bond villain surrounded by a bank, a, of, like a, bond a bank villain, of... A Bond villain. Bond trading rather than Bond, bond villain. Yeah. <laughs> so let's go on to your third scene now, um, which is also in America. And... Um, well, yes. Not, it's it, and Not that, such an optimistic moment. No, no, that is, <clears throat> well, although massively it's somewhat changed. And that was the Immigration Act. Well, then let's go back a bit. America, as you know, founded in, declared its independence in 1776, got its constitution and its first presidency in 1789, and then had to decide who could become a citizen of this country, who would be 
allowed, encouraged to migrate to what was notionally, and I say notionally, uh, an, an vast expanse of emptiness that should and could be settled by people from abroad. Ignoring, of course, the fact that there were hundreds of thousands, nay, millions of indigenous people already living here. Right from the start, 1790 Naturalization Act said aliens, people from overseas, can become citizens and latent. Initially, it was white men and then white people. And then, just remember slavery, then black people to an extent, but never could Native Americans, the people that actually lived here, that were the fabric of this country, Cherokee and Sioux and Apache and Seminole, no, they were completely discounted. So they weren't even allowed to vote until the 1920s, which still it, it, it's really difficult, me. isn't it, to 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 try and you know, as a historian, you're always trying to get to the understand the mindset of people in the past, and but it, it's all it's impossible to imagine being that the kind of person who could arrive in a new land and then say, oh, this is ours, and you who've been living here for millennia, you you don't count. I mean, it, it's, it, I find it, it, it's impossible, isn't it? It's it very, very... belief. But on the other hand, there is this concept, is there not, of terra nullius. You arrive, let us say, on the shores of Australia as Captain Cook when he arrived in Bounty Bay and whatever it was. And the idea that if there are creatures living here and they don't look like you and don't behave like you, then they're animals. They're like they're kangaroos or lions or whatever. Mm. So you don't count them as people. No, no. And, and that was the, the mindset. You talk about mindsets. That was essentially how it was organized. They, they said, well, this is empty land. I mean, there are some animals who live here. And they look somewhat similar to us, but they're clearly not us. Don't speak English. So... Um, we'll discount them. And that was effectively, for a very long time, the way that indigenous people in this country were regarded. Shameful. And then you got immigration, which is a very, very complicated, and I'm going to quote you a number in a moment, which is going to blow your mind, blew mine when I came across it anyway. People started arriving across the Atlantic, inspired by the whole concept of manifest destiny, which means you push the country west and you quote, conquer the frontier, as you do. And then people coming from the across the Pacific, particularly once gold had been found in Sutter's Mill in California, a lot of people came from China. And the Americans, white Americans, didn't like this idea at all. They found the Chinese incomprehensible. And this applied later to the Japanese and to a limited extent. Well, they found people. Chinese incomprehensible. I mean, they couldn't understand well, they like, couldn't find they the language English, incomprehensible. So. The, the fact that these people that were you know, very hard workers and would take a pittance in terms of wages, and that was an attractive aspect of mm. them to their employers, but they didn't assimilate. They didn't seek to become part of the American body politic. And so it was suggested in the newspapers of the time, and this goes back to the whole, that aspect of the transmission of information, that they were disease-ridden and their cultures were deplorable in one sense or another. And so there was an attempt to um, ban them. I mean, one of the initial acts was the Page Act, which said that Chinese women couldn't come here unless they could prove they were not prostitutes. 
then all Chinese were banned, 1882, I think it was, the Chinese Exclusion Act, the first time that a specific group of people was, were prohibited from coming to this country. And it was supposed to last for only 10 years, but it was renewed year after year, after decade after decade, until relatively recently, until the 1940s. Oh, my goodness. I know, it's quite extraordinary. Then 1917, there was, some, well, then there were rows with the Japanese and there was something called the Gentleman's Agreement in, I think, 1907, which got the Japanese to restrict migration to the United States in exchange for an American assurance that Japanese already here could be educated in American schools. And then there was a sort of to hell with it attitude. And in in the 19 and specifically in 1924, an act, the Immigration Act of 1924, which was called informally the Asian Exclusion Act, limited severely and indeed essentially totally banned migration from what was called the Barred Asiatic Zone. And there's a map of the world which shows that from essentially the Arabian Peninsula in the west up to Hokkaido in the northern part of Japan, with this exception of the American colony of the Philippines, and one or two American-owned islands in Micronesia and in the Pacific Ocean. Migration from these countries in the Barsi Asiatic Zone were prohibited. And that remained on the books until the 50s, well, some relaxation in the late 40s, considerable relaxation in the 50s, and then it's got more and more liberal. But the number I wanted to quote you, and I have to actually go to this computer and look at it, is, is to do with quota systems that were introduced to try and limit the numbers of certain migrants. And the number is as follows. Let me see if I can bring it up. There is a number, zero point, and this is the law, can you believe, that holds a number like this, zero point zero zero one six seven five eight five four eight five seven. If you use that number and multiply the number of English origin people in the United States at the time, which was, let's say, 60 million, and you multiply it by this 0.0184, then you get a number, 64,320. And that is the number of English people that would be admitted to the United States. I mean, what kind of madness is inherent in a situation like that? where nine-digit numbers are applied as multiplicands for the number of a certain type of person already who, here. Who Could came you... up with these numbers? And, and why, why were they limiting immigration? Was America filling up? I mean, was, was it well, a worry point, about that? Of course it's not. No, I mean, there's... No, I mean, it's a big place. It's a big old place. <laughs> yeah, it's a very big old place. No, it was, in this case, it was <clears> um, the, the architects of this particular act, people called Johnson, Reed Johnson, was a senator from Washington state and Reed was a congressman from Pittsburgh and the two of them heavily influenced by books like there was one famous or infamous book the passing of the great race which said that um that's eugenics might, basically well, yeah 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 the, the, these were known eugenicists both of these men okay. Johnson and Reed and um eugen when these laws were put on the books they were written by men always men of course yeah not entirely always but usually anyway eugenicists no always men <laughs> <laughs> you know margaret sanger 
birth control person, very much a eugenicist. So oh, okay. okay. Hold on. <laughs> We're not totally to blame for everything. <laughs> um, so yeah, so just, yeah. going back to this, I mean, so we've got one of these aspects that I find fascinating, and this goes back to the story of information, is it's terribly difficult to find out about the finer details of these extraordinary racist, eugenics-based pieces of, of um, information. If you type the word Asian Exclusion Act, for instance, into Google these days, algorithms will direct you quite often away from the word Asian to Aryan. Now, why is that? I'm puzzled and I'm fascinated by the idea that it's not always as easy as you think to find, to plumb the darker depths of American information because of algorithms, which then brings us into the whole business of artificial intelligence. And so the reason I included this is not so much to talk about American immigration policy, because that hasn't got a great deal to do with information, but it's on the ease or difficulty of finding out information about these things. And that goes to algorithms. And algorithms, of course, is all about developed nowadays into the whole business of AI. But so do you think that someone is influencing the algorithm in order to hide this information? Is that yes, what you're saying? I do. I do. And, and who? I have no idea. And I don't, I'm the last person to be called a conspiracy theorist. But QAnon, was, QAnon. <laughs> oh, please. <laughs> no, but, but no, that's, I mean, I mean, that's, and that's the terrifying, that's one of the many, 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 many terrifying things about AI, isn't it? Is, is that uh, it, people, we, we don't know. People could influence this, this kind of thing. And we don't know. Someone yeah. is influencing it somewhere, and I'll leave it at that. I have no yeah. idea who, but it makes me not trust the information I read. And that is a troubling aspect of all of this, is the lack of trust um, in any information, whether it's the New York Times, whether it's Google or whoever. But and nowadays, talking... of course, with, with, with chat and GPT, you've no trust at all. Yeah, let's not even go there. Um, not... But presumably if you went to... I don't know, the Library of Congress or one of the big u- u- Harvard University library, you could search up this app. You certainly could. And you, you could, could find books could, about it. Yeah, you, you could. I mean, I'm not... So you're I'm, talking I'm very mainly... much whether people are removing things from from bookshelves, but... Well, um, it's been done before. It has been done before, yeah. I um, think you worked at the Bodleian for a while, didn't you? I did, yes. And I still um, I still go there as often as I can to do research because I live half an hour outside Oxford and um yeah it's one of well, the most... lucky. Well, let them not touch that no, Although no. Richard well, Ovenden, the it's, librarian, it's, it's yeah Richard who, yeah and he, precisely that exactly I think it's in very safe hands at the moment um I wanted to ask one very quick last question um which is your subtitle of knowing what we know is the transmission of knowledge from ancient wisdom to modern magic and I wanted to know why did you choose the word magic because to the average outsider, and that would include me, what is going on in this computer-dominated world seems like magic. And that began, for me, I think, in 1967, when a man called Jerry Merriman, working for Texas Instruments outside Dallas, invented the first electronic calculator called the Caltech 2500. And for $400, you could buy this. It fitted in your shirt pocket. And you pressed a button, or several buttons, if you wanted to add 23 to 47 to get 70. 
um, you could do that and the number 70 would flash up on the screen in front of you. How that happened, you had no idea. You used to have an idea if you used an abacus or if you used a slide rule, you would be aware of the mathematical processes going on in front of you. But with this electronic calculator, you had no idea what was going on inside. It seemed like magic. And that's the reason I use the word magic. Yeah, um, I think it's a very good choice of word because it is. And when you, I don't have a clue how my mobile phone works. Um, <laughs> it is magic. It is magic, isn't it? Well, um, I mean, let me just tell you about your mobile phone. The transistor, which to me is the unrivaled, most important invention of the 20th century. The radio, the initial, you mean? My big pun. The Sorry, the transistor radio. No, 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 I mean the transistor. Okay, what is a transistor? Oh, well, how many hours do you want to <laughs> We don't have time? enough time. Carry but on, it, carry on. I'll look okay, it up. The first transistor was invented by Bell Labs in 1947-48 by three men, one of whom, called Mr Shockley, was a known eugenicist. I mean, absolute unrivaled eugenicist. The first one was about the size of my fist. Now they shrunk them and shrunk them and shrunk them. And now in your phone, the one that's sitting in front of me here, there are four billion transistors, which enable you and me to talk on a video link with comparative ease from a village outside Oxford to a village outside New York City. There are more transistors in the world today then there are leaves on all the trees in all the world. I mean, that is a breathtaking. Yeah, that is mind-blowing. That is totally mind-blowing. And yet you said, and this no criticism applies to you a few seconds ago. What is what a transistor? Is transistor? <laughs> it's magic. It's all magic. I don't want to know how it That's works. That's what I mean. It's magic. <laughs> um, oh, Simon, thank you so much. It's been an absolute joy to talk to you today. I loved it too. It was great fun and um, indeed magical. <laughs> that was me, Violet Muller, speaking to Simon Winchester about his latest book, Knowing What We Know, The Transmission of Knowledge from Ancient Wisdom to Modern Magic, which has just been published. For more information, please visit our website, tttpodcast.com. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>